Almighty God, we ask your grace and mercy to be upon us, that we would have wisdom to understand this passage. I pray that as your appointed minister of this church, that you would grant me wisdom and grace as I seek to explain your word in a manner which is pleasing to you, glorifying to your name, and beneficial to those who are here today. We ask this in the mighty name and purity of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Sermon on the Mount, please recall that Jesus is basically turning the moral universe of the Pharisees upside down. The Pharisees were the teachers of Israel, the scribes, the experts in the so-called oral tradition and the written word. And what he's doing is he's basically laying down the gauntlet for the remainder of his earthly ministry. He's positing himself as the authoritative interpreter of the Old Covenant, as the authoritative arbiter of uh, legal discussions, and not they. They were in the habit of watering down God's commandments. It seems when we read the Gospels, as I mentioned, that they were very, very strict. And in some ways they were. They were very strict with other persons. When it came to themselves, they were a little more slack. And they were very, very slack with many of their judicial rulings. People would come to them to have them interpret certain cases, casuistry, case laws. And they would interpret them very, very lightly, generally speaking. By the time Christ preached this sermon, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is a capital offense in the Old Covenant, and ironically, as we'll see, is still a capital offense in the New Covenant, they had watered it down to the point where it basically was this, thou shalt not get caught committing adultery. They had made the rules of evidence so detailed that it was almost impossible to get caught. It really was. And we see here, once again, Jesus turning their moral universe upside down. And we should cheer that, but we should also beware. Because I think that in most of us, maybe even each of us, there's a little inner Pharisee. We do like to water down God's word. We do like to water down his law. We certainly, each of us at times, like to make excuse for our sin. We also like to magnify the sin of others. We like to give justifications and excuses and explanations for our sin rather than simply beating our heart like the publican and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, which is the only proper response. When we come to God, there is no excuse for sin, and there is never a good explanation. All we can do is fall on our knees and repent and confess our sin. That is the only proper response. The Pharisees rarely, if ever, gave that response. They were very spiritually proud. They, after all, were the inheritors of the oral law and were authoritatively supposed to teach the people what they learned. He's proving, Jesus is, that this commandment is exceedingly serious. As a pastor, I can assure you that adultery has permanent consequences on marriage. It has permanent effects in persons' lives, both offender and offendee and the children involved, if there are children involved. Can forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation happen? Yes. 
And those things, should they happen, they must happen. But let's be very clear. Perfect healing is for heaven. Perfect healing doesn't usually occur here on earth. We can have what Francis Schaeffer called substantial healing. You might even get 99% of the way. But 100% healing, either emotional, mental, or physical, doesn't happen in this world. In the physical realm, no matter how many operations we have, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many glasses of water we drink a day, someday we're going to die. We'll be perfectly healed physically in heaven. We'll be perfectly healed emotionally, mentally, and spiritually in heaven. And Christ here is pointing out that this is a disastrous sin. I can assure you as a pastor that there are a few commandments, other than violating the first one blatantly and following a false religion, that in the realm of the family, this is number two on the list. If you decide to convert to Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Islamism, or Mormonism, it doesn't matter if you're faithful to your wife or your husband, if you lead your family into a false religion. But if you've got that first commandment down, if you're a Christian and you're doing your best to worship God, then this number seven, if you're married, this is the one that can cause the most damage to your life. More so than stealing. Quite frankly, more so even than murder. Because marriage is the essential fundamental building block of a family. And the family is the essential and fundamental building block of the church and of society. And when adultery enters into a marital situation, it's not just the marriage that's affected. The church is affected. Society is affected. And everybody is hurt by it. And we say that we live in a very sensual age, and we do, but this commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is 3,000 years old. It's, it's been a problem for a while, for men and for women. And the commandments are given basically in the uh, male vernacular, but they apply to women as well. Whatever is commanded of a man is likewise commanded of a woman. And there are also positive links to this as well, which we'll see in a moment. It's not just a thou shalt not. That's just the top of the cake, so to speak, the category of law. There are other cases underneath and particulars that we have to examine as well. But the basic gist of this passage is don't do this. It's a disaster. Jesus quotes the scriptures. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, everybody's okay with that. But then Jesus goes ahead. Remember, the Pharisees had watered it down and says, basically, you have to be really caught red-handed in the physical act in order to be punished, in order to be executed. And by the time of Jesus, this law wasn't really even being in effect. The Pharisees had just let it slide. We see that in the passage in John 8, where the Pharisees bring, the leaders bring, a woman who is caught in adultery. They say in the very act. And they ask Jesus. And they say, well, the law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? Hmm. Very interesting passage in scripture. They're laying a trap for him. And he's able to see into men's hearts. That's what was unnerving about being in Jesus' presence. He was able to look at you. 
and read right through all of your guises and see right to the core of your being. And when you were in his presence, you pretty much knew that. And it unnerved people. Now, what's interesting about that passage in John 8 is it does take two to tango. And they only bring the woman. Where's the guy? He's not there. It's not a legal court. Secondly, the law said, the actual written law of God said that you have to have two or three witnesses. Well, where are the witnesses? They're not there. It's an illegal court from starting one. But then Jesus says this remarkable thing. He starts to write things in the dirt. And the gist of it is this, and it's a famous passage. He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, Jesus wasn't telling the Pharisees, if you're sinless, cast the first stone. He was talking about that particular crime. Because remember, the basic crime of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. They would tell the people, don't do A, while they went out and did A, B, and C. It's okay to tell people, don't do A, if you don't do A. It's okay to say, don't steal, but they were stealing. That's not okay. And so when he tells the leaders, if you're without sin, you cast, he was without sin, cast the first stone. He had been able to see into their heart and he realized, hey, you're all a bunch of cheaters here. So if you feel good enough about yourself and your walk, you pick up the stone and toss the first one. Guess what? None of them do it. Jesus proves them guilty in their illegal court. And he tells the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. He doesn't excuse her sin. He tells her, go and sin no more. And there are some Christian traditions that say that that woman was Mary Magdalene. We really have no evidence of that. But Jesus is pointing out that this is a serious, serious thing. And he's also pointing out that the law is a lot deeper than just physical sensuality. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman, or in our day, you look at a man to lust for her or him, has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, Jesus wants our hearts. He doesn't want formalism. He doesn't want moralism. As I pointed out last week, he doesn't want be a good boyism, be a good girlism. He wants our hearts. And if we were able to, for just a minute, see how terrible sin is in God's eyes. Now, if we could see sin in all its black, nasty tariness, we would run from it like the plague. We would run from it like the plague. Any sin. But we don't. Why? Because we're sinners. And because we enjoy sin. The Proverbs tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season. A lot of people like getting drunk. I don't know anybody who enjoys a hangover. Thieves pretty much love stealing, but I don't know anybody who likes getting caught, going to jail. And we all stumble in many ways. Let's always bear that in mind. And Jesus points out the severity of this crime, and the sin really is a crime against God's law. With this right eye and right hand stuff, listen carefully. If this law was taken seriously, lawfully, literally, which it's not supposed to be, the world would be filled with blind people. The world would be filled with people with no hands. 
And this is highly hyperbolic, exaggerated, figurative language. We're not supposed to literally gouge our eyes out. What is this telling us? This is telling us that if we were to walk away from our sin, it will hurt. Imagine physically gouging your eye out. I don't like getting paper cuts. Maybe some of you who work with your hands smash your hands this week. It's never fun. Bang your head against the cabinet. Imagine actually doing this. Actually cutting off your right hand. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. And Jesus is telling us that this sin is so serious that if you walk away from it, and you had better walk away from it, it's going to hurt an awful lot. You're going to have withdrawal symptoms. Drug addicts love doing the drugs. They don't like the effects of it. They don't like having to quit the drugs. They don't like having to go through cold turkey and seeing their body shake. An alcoholic will love to drink, but if they actually make a decision to quit, and they quit, they will physically just go through a horrible experience. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you would best get ready to do this. So the challenge has been laid down. And we can apply this idea of withdrawal from sin to any of the commandments. Because sin becomes an addictive behavior. Overeating, undereating, overworking, underworking, violating the Sabbath, making excuses for our sin. They're all at coveting. That's the last commandment. It's the unseen one. You can look clean to everybody in the world, but if you're coveting, nobody can tell that. I guess somebody messed up on Fox News this week. Commentator Bob Beckel, apparently, um, one of the token liberals on the Fox network, let fly with a really awful profanity to a lady. And um, I don't watch the show, but I watched the clip on YouTube to verify it. Um, you know, it was on the Sean Hannity show, and Sean Hannity says, Whoa, what are you doing? Better apologize. I'm not apologize. And he just really let fly on the lady. He used the awful word. And he said, we're on camera. He said, no, we're not. We're not on camera. Yes, we are. And then he said, well, why aren't we on camera now? And Sean Hannity said, we are. And the look on his face was someone who had just eaten Dale dog food when he realized, oh. Now, we all think we're off camera. And we all, we all do things. Let's cut Mr. Beckel just a little slack because we all do things like that, right? We just don't do them on national TV. We don't do them on national TV. But let's be very clear that with God, you're always on camera. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Wherever you go, He's there. Whatever you think, He's there. Whatever you say, He's there. Whatever you say when you're alone in a car, he's right there. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives physically with inside you. And the Holy Spirit actually experiences those things. That's why the scriptures tell us do not grieve the Holy Spirit. When we sin, the Holy Spirit is actually there experiencing it. Dangerous, dangerous grounds. You're never off camera. I'm never off camera. The, the red light for the radio is always on. 
And that should scare us. The scriptures tell us that Christ, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that the word of God, that before God, we are naked and bare before him. You can clean yourself up for the ones you love. You can clean yourself up for your pastor, your elders. Politicians clean themselves up for their, their constituents. And we do it for ourselves. We play mental games with ourselves and say, well, I'm not really that bad. There's always somebody worse than you. You always find someone who's worse than you. Just have to look around a little bit. They're always on camera. But it also should bring great comfort as well. To know that, yes, God is there when I'm sinning, but his forgiveness and mercy is always there as well. Because there's two parts of God. Justice and mercy. Think of Christ. He never violated this command. With that woman in John chapter 8, Jesus could have picked up the stone. But he didn't. He didn't. He showed mercy because it wasn't his place. He obeyed the letter of the law. He wasn't involved in that dispute. We see another instance where someone comes and says, Master, please divide the inheritance between my brother and I. He says, Man, who made you arbiter? Who made me arbiter between you two? It's not my affair. Jesus obeyed the letter and the spirit of the law perfectly. Wow. And because he did that, He satisfied the ceremonies and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. And because he satisfied those, he was able to go to the cross for your benefit to satisfy the judicial aspects of the law, the penalties of the law. Those sacrifices weren't done willy-nilly. They were nasty. They were ugly. They were brutal. They were bloody. There was smoke and fire involved. And they had to be done over and over and over again. And when Christ went to Calvary, he satisfied the justice of God. So that the mercy of God and the grace of God could be dispensed to us who have allowed Christ to be our substitute. That's what he's talking That's what he talked about earlier. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, when Jesus said in verse 17, the law or the prophets, that's an easy shorthand way of saying the old covenant, the whole thing. It all points to him. So we understand the ceremonies and the judicial aspect of the law are satisfied in Christ. But what about the moral law? The way we're supposed to ethically live before God and amongst each other. Christ satisfied that as well in his teaching. He's pointing us, he's showing us, hey, I'm the authoritative Teacher of moral, biblical ethics. What I say is the final word. And Christ is saying that this sin, commandment number seven, is so serious that A, it, God demands the death penalty. And B, if you're, if you're even tempted to do it, start gouging out body parts. I have to ask you, are you willing to do that with your sin? Are you willing to withdraw from sin? Sin has always been in the world, but in our day and age, because of mass media, it's almost impossible to escape it. Unless you run away and become a monk, 
You just can't. It's exceedingly difficult. Even the most benign of television shows, unless you go back and get Andy Griffith reruns, and they even had a drunk that you laughed at. Even the most benign of, of entertainments, they sneak coarse and insinuating sensuality into them. We need to be pointing these things out to our children to show them as they grow older. You see what's going on here? You see where they're violating God's law, where they're trying to actually trick you into doing what they're doing by making evil glamorous? Evil isn't glamorous. In God's eyes, evil demands dismemberment. What's the alternative? You have two alternatives. Listen to me carefully. If you've been dozing, please wake up. This is the two alternatives you have with this sin and with any other sin. You either withdraw from it and go through with those withdrawal symptoms or you lead yourself to hell. Those are your two choices. You can suffer in this world the withdrawal symptoms which will feel like a physical dismemberment. And if you're addicted to this sensual type of behavior... If you've ever worked with someone who's addicted to this sensual behavior, to withdraw from it, to quit it, is like quitting drugs. It's painful. But you have two choices. Continue to do it and give in or walk right down that wide path to hell. Those are the two choices. Pain now or pain forever and ever. Amen. Those are the only two choices. You see how black and white Christ is? He doesn't cut us any slack. None. If we have been redeemed, and that's what Paul was getting at, and I'd like to say that I'm this brilliant guy who puts the readings together just so. I can do that, but I found that just by reading books consecutively, God will allow things to come up as they're supposed to come up. And 1 Thessalonians 4 and this writing in Matthew they, they concur and they coalesce perfectly. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians that you're supposed to remove yourself from sensual immorality and live a life of purity and sanctification because God, that's God's will. People come to me, Pastor, what's God's will for my life? I say, your sanctification. Pastor, what's God's will for my life? Your sanctification. I don't know if you're supposed to buy the house. I don't know if you're supposed to get this job. But he wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be pure. He wants you to be holy. Practically and ethically. We know that in Christ, because of what he has done, we are positionally holy. But once that occurs, God expects us to delight in his will and walk in his ways. So examine yourself here just for a moment. Man, woman. And child, with regard to this command, are you willing to experience those withdrawal symptoms? Or would you prefer eternity away from God's comfortable presence? Neither of them sound pleasant. So, what do we teach our children? Don't start the behavior. It's much easier to learn a good habit than to quit a bad one. All of us know that as human beings. It's easier to never smoke than to try and quit smoking. It's just easier. Don't buy the first pack of cigarettes. Don't smoke the first cigarette. And I guarantee you, you will not get addicted to tar and nicotine. It's a guarantee. 
Don't smoke, don't chew, and you will not get addicted. If you don't have the first drink, you cannot become an alcoholic. It's just that simple. If you don't begin the sensual type of immorality, you won't become addicted to it. But this is a very addictive commandment. You can easily quit stealing because you might get caught. But in our day and age, you could, you could indulge in this type of activity and nobody will ever know. Nobody's looking but God. But there's a positive correlation to this commandment as well. Remember, when God issues a thou shalt not, there is always a corresponding thou shalt will. So if you're married, you are to enhance the life of your marriage. And the dictates given to that are in the book of Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Wives, subject yourselves to your husbands the way the church submits itself to Christ. One sounds much more pleasant than the other. And I actually really get a kick out of doing premarital counseling and bringing this to the fore and telling the gentleman, I usually do it backwards. I say, now doesn't that sound good? God wants your wife to submit to you the way the church submits to Christ. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah! I says, now let's see what God wants you to do, chap. He wants you to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. How does he do that? Does, he, does Christ ever selfishly look out for his own interests? No. Does Christ ever, ever put anything above his church? No. The requirement for men is much more difficult. And I always tell the men, boy, if you can do this, if you can even get up to 85 or 95%, I promise you, your wife will never stop bragging about you. She won't have any problems submitting to you because you'll be almost the perfect man. Okay? You will always take out the trash. You will never utter a harsh word to her. You will never cheat on her. You will open up the word and teach her, which presupposes that the husband has more biblical and spiritual knowledge than the wife. I mean... Christ teaches his church, right, gents? Are you able to open up the word and gently point your wife in the right path? Most men say it's just, no, no, you don't understand. No. Uh -uh. I may know the word, but boy, if I just say one little thing, bam! She'll just go crazy on me. Why? It's because you haven't been doing the other things. Thou shalt not commit adultery means also thou shalt love thy spouse the way you love your own flesh. You see, the penalty is dismemberment, but a man is supposed to love his wife the way he loves his own flesh because the two shall become one. Right? That's what the scriptures say. The two shall become one. And Paul says, no man ever hurts his own body. Well, some men do, but there's a problem Self-harm is, generally speaking, considered to be insane behavior, scary behavior. So how are we doing with this one? Most of us are going to have to say, wow, I'm really glad I don't have to physically do this. But brothers and sisters, if Christ tells us 
using figurative and hyperbolic language that this command is so serious and causes so much damage to lives that you'd be better off cutting off your hand or taking out your eyes that we had best listen to him. If he's saying that it's preferable for you to dismember yourself than for your whole body to go into hell, then we had best listen to him. This is very serious language. The seventh commandment does more damage to marriage than any other commandment outside of the first one. And when we violate this commandment, we violate a host of them. We covet. We steal. You might notice the language that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians. Do not defraud your brother in this manner. The ancient church and the Jews, quite frankly, viewed adultery as almost a property crime because your wife's stealing, your husband's stealing. Violating a whole host of commandments, but ultimately what you're telling God is what you've given me isn't enough. You haven't given me enough. I want more. And to do that is to open up that door wide. Don't do it. I beg of you. And if you are, then please seek counsel. If you are, just stop. It will be painful. It will be horrible. But the alternative is exponentially worse. Live a life of purity. Christ died for you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would grant us the grace we need to go through those withdrawal symptoms. And we also ask you for the grace we need to teach our children not to begin to indulge in these type of behaviors. Please bless our marriages and keep them holy and pure. In Christ's precious name, amen.